I, I was talking to a man the other day, and we were talking about, he was sharing me that there were some churches in town that had differing reputations. And he said, that church over there, that's the church that's got the great preacher in the pulpit. And that church over there, that's the church that's known for their student ministry. they got a great recreational program. They're engaging kids at the school. And he was talking about one of the church plants in town. He said, this is a, this is a congregation that goes door to door. It's amazing how they've just permeated and gone throughout their community. And churches have reputations. And he asked me, what do you think the reputation of your church is? And I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It depends upon who you ask. Uh, our reputation is important. We're talking about being a compelling congregation. Our reputation is important? I, I think they are, but I will tell you that uh, it's yes and no. If you are motivated simply by your reputation, I think it will lead you into paths that you would not want to go. There, we don't want to please everybody. You can't please everybody. You certainly can't be all things to all people. And so there are some things that matter and some things that don't. How do you become a church that is compelling? How do you become a church that is reputable in the community? I, don't, I remember several years ago, it was back actually uh, right after Easter in 2007, and we had some guests in the congregation, and I began preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I don't know if you're familiar with how that book starts. But after nine verses of commendation, which is a very short commendation from the Apostle Paul for a letter of that length, he immediately says, now I have heard, Chloe's folks have told me, I have heard that you guys are fighting and you guys are quarreling and you're dividing up into sex. Well, the way groups, uh, uh, and so uh, the way that I introduced the sermon that week was I stood up in the pulpit and I just read that section as though I were speaking to our congregation. And I said, it has come to my attention that there are some among you who are fighting. And, qu and I just laid it out like Paul lays it out in in. Uh, in 1 Corinthians at the beginning of that. And we had a guest that was seated over on the left-hand side. She was a family member of some friends. And the more I talked, because, you know, I was like, you have this problem, we have this problem, we have this problem, and we're going to have to address it. And her face just, her mouth got wider and wider and wider. Like, I cannot believe that you're doing this from the pulpit. You're just calling, calling out specific things from the pulpit. And then, of course, his... Letter of commendation was, you know, I'm glad you're saved and I'm glad you know grace and I'm glad you've been a believer. Now, let's get right to fixing the problem. Very short commendation, a lot of correction. But then you come to the book of Colossians and the church at Colossae. And how does Paul begin his letter to the church at Colossians? Do you guys remember? We were just there a few months ago. I don't know if you remember. Let me, let me read it for you again. Colossians 1, I'm just going to start with verses 3 through 8. He says, we, me and those who are with us here writing this letter to you, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We, we're grateful. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, and indeed, in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He has made known to us, he shared to us your reputation. What is it? Of your love in the spirit, your love for God, your love for truth and the gospel, your love for one another. All of this to say the church at Corinth had a very different reputation than the church at Colossae. 
when it came to the ears of the Apostle Paul. And I do think that a bad reputation is not a badge of honor. I want you to understand that. A bad reputation is a barrier that we have to overcome in a community. And it may be based upon nothing at all. It may be based upon someone's opinion or just a, a single bad experience instead of the life of the church. I'm going to share an example from this Friday and try not to get myself in too much trouble. But Suzanne and I were taking my mom out to eat to a restaurant that we heard great things about. And so we wanted to go based upon the reputation. We get mom in the car and we're driving to the restaurant. She says, where are you taking me? And we told her the name of the restaurant. She said, oh, I don't want to go there. I said, okay, well, we don't have to go there. We've heard good things about it. She said, nope. I said, well, where would you like to go? She said, not there. (laughs) Which I thought was great. I'm glad that she has the freedom to express that. But in her mind, because of a single experience that she had off-site from that restaurant, that restaurant's no longer an option. And by the way, we made note of that. We will go and enjoy it and uh, and. If it's really good, we, we may change, might try to change her opinion. But at the same time, here's what I want you to understand. A bad reputation is something that has to be overcome on a case-by-case basis. You understand what I'm saying? It, it can be a barrier that has to be overcome, whereas a good reputation opens doors. But our motivation is not the reputation that we have in the community. Get this. Our motivation, our desire, the way we do things and don't do things, the way we interact is not based upon or motivated by having a good reputation in the community. It is based upon and motivated by having a good reputation with Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. You guys remember Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3? In Revelation chapter 1, we have the whole introduction to the book. But in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we have seven letters to seven churches. And in every one of them, it begins with, to the angel of the church at, to the messenger of the church at, and it begins with, I know you. I know your works. I know your location. One of them, he said, I know that you're, you're in the devil's hometown. I know what you're going through, and I know what you're doing, and I know what you're not doing. And then often he will give a commendation And I applaud that you're holding the truth. I applaud that you reject the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I uh, applaud that you're holding fast to the gospel. But then in a lot of them, he gives a condemnation. But I have this against you. The worst one, I think, is the very first church that you find in chapter 3. It's the church at Sardis. And he says, you guys have a reputation. It's not a bad one. Your reputation is that you're alive. But here's the problem. It's not accurate. You're dead. And you need to rescue that which lives, that which remains before it too dies. you understand what I'm saying about reputations? Yes, we need to be mindful, but the reputation that matters is what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks of us. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Speaking of pastors and elders from last week and the week before, it's what Paul said when he was explaining to them the role of pastors and elders. He's like, he said, listen, there's always something to criticize in a leader. There always is. There's always something that you will like and always something that you won't like. And he says, my primary motivation is not to be pleasing to you. I don't really care. I don't do what I do based upon your opinion or my reputation with you. I do what I do based upon what I believe Jesus thinks of me. I will give an account to him. Now, I want to be guiltless 
in my behavior. I, I, don't, wanna, I don't know of anything against me. That doesn't acquit me. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. But here's, here's my goal. My goal is not to be happy or sad based upon what, you know, the, the, the murmuring or the lack of murmuring based upon your, your affirmation and approbation or, or your critique or criticism. My goal is to please the Lord Jesus Christ in all that I do. And that is the reputation that I perceive. And so that's what we want, right? We want a church where Jesus is pleased with us, where we bring glory to him. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. We no longer live for ourselves. It's not about our reputation. It's not, not about our benefit. We now live for him. We now live to please him. And that needs to be true of our congregation as well. And I do believe that the Holy Spirit will use our obedience to God to make us have a positive reputation in whatever community and all the communities that God is calling us to reach. So what do we do? What does it mean to be a church that pleases God? What does it mean to be a compelling congregation? Well, our motivation is obedience to the Scripture as it's revealed in our passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 4. It's really a great passage that focuses upon what it means to be a compelling congregation. We started this series, and I know it's a long time ago, but think back. We started this series with the simple fact that a compelling congregation is a congregation that glorifies God, that exalts Jesus. And we talked about the membership, how the church is us. The church is not a location. The church is not a place. You are the church. I am the church. And in our lives, as we come together, cooperating, we give glory to God in our lives. And so the, the, the first thing is simply, what is the church? It's the members. It's you and I working together. The first point on your outline, if you're following is, again, this is a putting it all together. We're going to talk about church, we're going to talk about pastors and elders, then we're going to talk about deacons. But this is just basically a review and putting it all together and focusing upon why this matters. And so as we talk about members, we are one body. One body. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writing, say, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, who is the you he's talking about? That's right. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about the church gathered together, united together. And in this case, specifically Philippi, but it applies to this church, talking to me. And you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That just simply means you should be able to wear Christ's name on your jersey. You should be able to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. You should live in such a way that you're living dependent upon Him, trusting Him, glorifying Him. We are called to be transformed to the image of His Son. We are called as one body, every member, to lead a godly lifestyle as we pursue Christ. We're called to lead a godly lifestyle as you pursue Christ. I'm going to give you four quick points underneath this, and if you'll just... Look at, we'll look at the first one, lead a godly lifestyle. Walk worthy. We're to live lives that are holy. We're to live lives that are yielded to Him. And that's why how we live matters. That's why as a church, we come alongside of each other and say, you may be a new believer, you may not be a new believer, but at some point, we want you to grow and know what obedience looks like. And we encourage one another to lead a godly lifestyle in the pursuit of obedient to truth is revealed. Simple, right? Amen? Yes? Obedient to truth 
as it's revealed. But how do we do this? He goes right on and he says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Why does he immediately go to that? Because the church is made up of wildly different people. In their context, they had pagans, Greeks, hedonists. They had Romans, conquerors. They had slaves. They had, they had rulers and soldiers. They had Jews who were traditionalists and traditional Jews, very religious and very upright. Bringing all these people together into one new person, one new body, one new group, the church. And he says, you're going to need humility, you're going to need gentleness, you're going to need patience. You're going to need to bear with one another. Why? Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Here's the point. We have the same point of origin. We have the same Creator, but we have the same Savior. We're called to the same obedience. We believe the same truth. We are walking in the same direction. We have the same Holy Spirit who indwells us all. And one of the ways that God works in us to conform us to the image of His Son is He puts us with people who think differently and who act differently and who come from different backgrounds. And we determine what's important and what's not important. And with humility and with gentleness and with patience and with bearing with one another, we are able to demonstrate to the to the world a difference than what they have. Not groups always at war with one another. Not groups always battling with one another. But unity that is celebrated by the diverse congregation that God brings together. Does that make sense? Unity. Unity. So we are to protect the unity of the congregation. We're to be eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit. In the bond of peace. He goes on in this passage of Scripture and he says, um, in saying that he has sent, well, let's uh, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us. And that's important because this is the word charis. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12 for gifts. But grace, charis, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended, this is a quote, he's going back to Psalm 68, verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then we've got a paragraph, verse 9 and 10, that says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. The point of that is simply to say, when the psalmist was writing about Psalm 18, when he talks about the one who ascended and gave gifts to men, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and descended. And now is ascended and is fulfilling this promise of giving gifts to men. Why? What are these gifts? Well, they're spiritual gifts, they're talents, they're abilities, they are provisions and resources. It is what he calls us, what, how he gifts us, in order that we may fully engage in the life of his body. We are called to participate in the life and the work of the church. Christians don't live in isolation. Amen? Aren't you glad? Christians surround one another. We connect with one another. We hang out together. We talk together. We study the Bible together. We pray together. When we celebrate, we celebrate together. 
When we suffer, we share in one another's suffering. When we work, we work shoulder to shoulder and side by side. As we go through life, we don't lead lives of isolation as believers. We're not designed for it. We're designed to connect and network and let down the walls and open the doors and expand our embrace so that we become people who live worthy of the calling that He's given us. We need to live in a way that glorifies God, obedience to truth as revealed, who are working toward unity, coming alongside of one another, and then partnering together in the, using the gifts and the abilities and the talents that He's given us in order that we might serve, serve one another, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and serve the community that He's placed us in. And the word for that, of course, is diakonos, serving in ministry, is the fourth point underneath this. So we lead a godly lifestyle. This is congregation-wide. We protect church unity. We participate in the life and the work of the church. And we serve in the ways that God has equipped us to serve. And then he goes in this passage of Scripture right into some specific gifts that God gave the church. In verse 11, he says he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists and shepherds and teachers or pastor teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The first thing that we looked at in this series was the congregation and the purpose of the congregation. The last thing that we looked at is, is where we're going next, and that is the role of pastor and elders. And we spent two weeks talking about who they are and what they do and the qualifications for them found in First Timothy and in other passages of Scripture. But a healthy congregation not only is one body united in obedience, it has equipping leaders. In this passage of Scripture, specifically equipping leaders. Now he gives four words here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then pastor teachers, pastors who teach or teaching pastors, all right? And so, where did the apostles and the prophets come into this? If you look back just two chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, he's already said that God has laid the groundwork for this church that Christ is building through the gift of pastors, teachers. Here's what he says, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone so those were the foundations for the establishment of the church what is the ongoing is the evangelist is the church planter is those who are leading and equipping particularly in leading in new areas and unreached areas and sharing the gospel with people who are not familiar with the gospel and then the pastor teachers is the outreach arm of the of leadership and is the inreach arm of the in leadership where we learn and study god's word evangelists and pastor teachers a compelling congregation is a congregation that recognizes its one body. It's a congregation that has leaders that teach and equip the congregation. What, what do they do? I want to pick up and read in verse 12. And we'll read through, uh, well, let's just read verse 12. He gave us pastors and teachers to equip the saints, evangelists and pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood or adulthood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You get that, right? Elders bear all of the same responsibility of every member of the church. Pastors are members of the congregation. Everything that applies to the congregation applies to the pastor. 
What is the distinction? What is the difference? It is one of responsibility and duty. And is that to oversee? Is that to teach and instruct? And it is that to models. To model. So the first thing we need to, or we bear the same responsibilities as every member of the church, but we model godly character. And we teach sound doctrines. We lead with caring wisdom. Let's start with that. Pastors lead with care and with wisdom. We're called to love the church. I shared with you about pastors that resented their church. Share with you about pastors who were so desperate to get away. But we're called to love the sheep that God has entrusted. Every shepherd is called to love the sheep that God has entrusted to them. We're called to care and to lead. But what is First Timothy all about? These past two weeks, it's all about the character of the life of the pastor. Certainly, dis- not distinct from the congregation, everyone is called to maturity, but it is a call to have some level of maturity. It's a call to demonstrate it and a call to know sound doctrine and to teach it. And that's important because as we saw in Timothy, as we see in Ephesians, as we see in Colossians, as we see even back in 1 Corinthians, as a matter of fact, most of the congregational letters that Paul wrote, he's battling some form of false doctrine, some form of false teaching that is invading the church. And it is the role of this position, pastor and elder, to protect the congregation from false doctrine. Now, guys, that sounds pretty easy, and it sounds pretty straightforward. But it is a massive role and responsibility, particularly in this day and in this age. And the way that we do that is to be students of the Word. The way that we do that is to be men of prayer who listen to God, who open the Scriptures and search them, who allow the Holy Spirit to keep our eyes open. It is so easy to be deceived. It is so easy to follow the the inclinations of your own heart rather than the clearly revealed truth of Scripture. That the first place that we start in protecting from false doctrine is protecting our own minds and protecting our own hearts. It is being so rooted and grounded in Scripture that when somebody teaches something, you you get a sense immediately, yes, this is congruent, this is in alignment, this affirms what I know from the teaching of Scripture, or this challenges it. It sounds good, but it doesn't have depth. I was telling Suzanne this week, I was watching a a clip of a pastor preach, and it was a pastor who was getting ready to face discipline in his church. And I have to tell you that I agree with the actions of the church that this pastor should have been disciplined. But when he preached, he was enthusiastic, and he was fiery, and he took some passages of Scripture out of context, and here's what he said. He said, you people... Want grace from the pulpit. You want grace from the pulpit and to be affirmed, but you're not willing to extend grace to the pulpit. And he called these people out. He said, some of you, and he calls out some specific things, have been immoral in this area and been immoral in this area. And some of you have been believing wrong here and you've been doing wrong here. And yet you let the pastor make one mistake and you disqualify him. You're not willing to extend grace to the pulpit. And, and he was justifying his desire to stay in a pulpit. All right. So is the setting okay? Did I communicate that clearly? Uh, can I tell you that he was right and wrong? He is right in that the pastor should be corrected. 
should be extended grace to. He should be forgiven. He should be corrected, and if he's repentant, he should be forgiven. But he's wrong in that the pastor is held in every New Testament teaching on elders, is held to a standard that says there are some lines that you cannot cross and serve in this area. There are some lines that you cannot cross. When you cross them, it doesn't mean that you're not loved by God. It doesn't mean that you can't be washed and that you can't be cleansed. But it means that you can't serve in this role and in this area. Does that make sense? And so we've got to make sure that as a pastor, we're not self-serving. That we don't teach doctrine that makes us feel better about ourselves or that secures us in some way. We've got to make sure that we teach the whole counsel of God. That we teach it in depth. That we teach it truthfully. And that we apply it accurately in the life of the church. And so not only do we bear the same responsibilities, we are members of the church. Obviously that goes without saying. We try to fill our minds with the Word of God so that we can be wise. We try to care and love as the Holy Spirit loves us and forgives us to, to, to love and lead people. We try to, in our, in our walk with God, model what it means to be a believer who is walking after God and then to be equipped to teach well and then to protect the congregation from false teachers. It's a role that leadership has. So a compelling congregation is one body that has equipping leaders. And this is part of that equipping and instructing Sometimes you, you may ask, or now's a good time to ask, what about deacons? Didn't we teach about deacons? We did. We taught about deacons for two weeks. What did deacons do? What does the word deacon mean? This is a test. Were you paying attention? Do you remember? Diakonos. What did, what did deacons do? What does it mean? Serve. Serve. Literally, the word is diakonos. Through the dirt. Through the dirt. Uh, any plumbers in the house? I, I got some work that needs doing, so I'm, I'm looking. Any plumbers in that? I was underneath my house yesterday. And if you guys want some excitement, just come over. I'll let you go underneath the house. I will tell you that I was not alone. I was not happy about not being alone, but I was not alone. Uh, we have a squirrel who visits, evidently, underneath the house on a regular basis. Also, and just in case you're wondering, spiders live underneath houses in crawl spaces. But here's the bad illustration, okay? But here I am crawling, and the first part of my uh, crawl space is military crawl. But, I mean, it is hands and knees going underneath ducts. It is military crawl. But then you get to a place where it drops down, and then you can get up on hands and knees and crawl for a bit. But then if you want to get somewhere else... You've got to go down underneath the ductwork, and you just as flat as you can go getting underneath there. Then you get back up, and you can work. And I was working on some plumbing, and I was thinking through dirt. This is a perfect picture of what it means to be a deacon in the church, isn't it? Working your way through the dirt to fix an issue, to serve, to help, to find a problem and resolve it, to, to reach out. All right? I want you to know that pastor's deacon, every member's deacon, we all serve, minister, New Testament word, minister, serve. Same word, same word. No distinction in the word. Ministry, service, the pastors are to be deacons of the word of God. The whole church is to joyfully do those 
good works that the world may see these good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We are called to serve one another. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, repeatedly throughout Scripture, we all serve. So who are deacons? Deacons are models of this. Deacons are, are, are leaders in this. Deacons are those who we identify as a role to, to help the congregation grow in this area. And as a position, they minister to the physical needs of the congregation. They minister to the physical needs. The responsibility that they had in Acts chapter 6 was to make sure that the widows were taken care of. It was to make sure that the food was equally distributed. It was to make sure that the benevolence ministry was working. And it may be any aspect of the physical needs of the church. The character of the deacon is responsible for working toward what we've already said every member is responsible for. Working toward unity in the body of church of the of the church. In Acts chapter six we had a very clear picture that they are supportive of the ministry of the Word of God. They don't work as a as a deliberative body with the elders or the pastors of the church. They support the ministry of the Word of God that is primarily administered through the elders and the teaching pastors of the church. And they model and they lead in specific areas of ministry. Now, when you get to the end, by the way, that's what all that's about, equipping equipping the saints, preparing, training, getting ready to go, deploying, sending, go do this. How do we do this? What, what, what is the goal? What is the end result here? It's found in verses 15 and 16. So that we're not tossed about with every wind of doctrine, so that we're no longer children failing about what is the point here. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. Who is that? It's Jesus. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is, which, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here's what we get. That's the image, that's the goal, that's the desire, that's the picture. Hey folks, that's us. That's us. It is every believer worshiping authentically, loving God genuinely, and expressing our love to Him. It is every believer learning the truth of God, being taught and teaching God's Word and applying it to our life. It is every believer reliantly depending upon God through prayer, as we speak to Him and communicate with Him and remain in communion with Him. And as we get this vertical relationship strong, horizontally we love people, we love one another, we open our hearts to one another. We make disciples. We are happy to greet people where they are. We never want to leave people where they are. We always want people, as we get closer to Christ, to grow closer to Christ along with us. And that requires sacrifice. We give generously of our attention, our time, our energy, and our effort for God's glory. And so that's putting it all together. Membership, pastors and elders, diaconate, every person with a role and a responsibility, an opportunity to come together in unity so that God is glorified in us. Amen? Good stuff, right? So this is the summary chapter. In this series, we had an introduction. This is the conclusion. This is the summary chapter.
But we have to end with this. What's the big deal? Why does it matter? Why is it significant? What's the big deal? I mean, church is just something you do on Sunday morning, right? It's a place where you take your kids and drop them off. I mean, you know, I go to this social club and I go to that thing and I have a job that I go to and certainly my family has responsibilities for me and church is just another category on my calendar, right? It's not right. It's not right. When Jesus said, I will build my church, what's he talking about? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about calling people who are lost to salvation and giving them life. Then he's talking about uniting them together in the context of local assemblies that are conformed to his character to represent him to the world. It matters because we are the church. And when you're on the job Monday, you're the church on the job Monday. When you're at home and you're trying to figure out what to do or what not to do with what God has entrusted to you, you are the church at home. When you're out in a restaurant, you are the church out in a restaurant. When you're at a school board meeting, you are the church in the school board meeting. Hey, it's November, almost. When you're voting, you are the church Casting a vote. Do you understand what I'm saying? Church should never be just because church is Christ. It's Christ living within us. It's Christ accomplishing His purpose in us and through us. It's never just a category that we turn our attention to sometimes. It's what you become. It's who you become when God saves you and regenerates you. And He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth you learning. Patience and endurance in bearing with one another. He's worth you fighting for unity in the body of Christ so that his body is not divided but is able to move in the same direction toward the goals that he has for it. He's worth it. He's worth you taking time to be equipped and to learn and to add something to your schedule even if it means taking something else off so that you can serve in the body and serve through the body. He's worth it. He's worth it because... The Lord is not willing. He's delayed His recoming. He has delayed His return. <laughs> Let me get my words out. He's, he's delayed His return. You know why? According to 1 Peter chapter 3? Because there are lost people who need to be saved. You know why the Lord hadn't already come? Because there are lost people who need to be saved. There are people who need to ask God for forgiveness of their sins. There are people who need to be awakened to the reality of of their situation is separated from God by their sin and destined toward, destined toward hellfire for eternity. That's why he's not come back yet. He's not willing that any should perish. Does what we do and who we are matter? It matters for the glory of God and it matters for a world that's going to die apart from him. We have a role and a responsibility and a privilege and a joy to be his hands and his feet. So why does this matter? Why does it matter how we structure? Because we want to be as obedient as we can, following the clearly taught principles of God's Word so that we grow up 
into the fullness of Christ. Some of these phrases ought to scare us to death. People ought to look at you and see Jesus. Even driving down Woodruff Road. And I don't mean to make light of this, but I got to tell you, it's the little things that matter. When we begin experiencing godly attitudes in the little trials of life, you'd be amazed how readily that translates to godly attitudes in the big trials of life. And that we are to grow united together into the fullness of Christ is evident in us and through us. What a privilege. What a responsibility. What a joy that we get to be Christ's representatives in this world. Isn't God good? He is so good. Suzanne and I, again, we thank you for the flowers and for the gifts and for the appreciation. And I want you to know we love you. We're thrilled for the privilege that we have to come alongside of you, to be part of this body, to be part of what God's doing through West End Baptist Church, both at the Hilton and over on Arlington Avenue, and frankly, at your address and the address of your job and all the places you're going this week. God is good indeed. Father, thank you. Help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Help us to give glory to you in all that we do. And that means inwardly, first of all, Father, we've got we to gotta love one another. By this shall all men know that we are your disciples when we love one another well. Father, we've got to, to unite together in your cause. And I pray, Father, that you'll just continue to equip us, to, to transform us, to change us, to bring out the character of Christ in us, the life of Christ that you placed in us at salvation. Bring it out as we walk in obedience to your revealed truth, faithfully and consistently. Be with us as we pastor and elder and teach and instruct in your word. Be with us as a congregation as we identify those who model and lead in serving, recognizing that discipleship happens on the road Discipleship happens uh, as we roll up our sleeves and as we work, as we serve you and as we serve one another. Father, we love you and we're grateful. It is in your name I pray. Amen.